Welcome to Air Current Review. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Nick Island. Nick was an ex-REF Canberra, Jaguar, and F4 Phantom pilot. In this podcast, he talks about flying the Canberra, the special equipment he has to use, training on the NAT, and flying the Jaguar in Oman. Also, if you want to subscribe and watch this video, go to youtube.com forward slash aircrewinterview. Enjoy. I'm Nick Ireland, a retired RAF pilot. So Nick, how did you come interested in aviation? Shortly after the war, I was living with my parents in a big house in Hampstead and we let the top floor to a man who worked at the de Havilland factory at Hatfield and after a while he brought me a few aviation magazines back which I looked at and it sort of started from there uh, a magazine that I think is now long gone called The Aeroplane he brought back numbers of that or things from his office and I looked at them and it really started from there So when you first got that magazine how did you feel? Was it a burning ambition to be in the Air Force? It was really an interest in the contents. In those days, they didn't have computer-aided design, and there were marvellous whole double-page spread cutaways drawn done by draftsmen of aircraft, and I think it was the sort of technicalities of the construction and things that rather appealed to me initially, rather than the thought of flying them. I went to school. I went gliding. Then I got a, well, this isn't for you, I'm t- sorry, I'm telling you. When I went to school, I went gliding, learned to glide, went solo, uh, got a flying scholarship, which was uh, 30 hours training during a summer holiday to get a private pilot's license. Uh, but before I did that, I'd done this thing for the flying scholarship, the RAF scholarship, that gave my parents money to can help me continue at school to qualify educationally to be in the Air Force, to join. And was that a a necessity to have that education to get into the Air Force? You had to have two A-levels in relevant subjects, and I did. I got them. And what year did you join the Air Force? 1958. And how long was your training from when you first joined or got accepted? three years from joining to graduating with my wings fully qualified ready to go and learn to fly something else at an operational conversion unit it was three years and for the first year the pilots did navigator training in a flying classroom an aircraft called a valetta so that in the second year if they flunked out of pilot training they could fall back to being navigators without having to be recoursed. So I did a year learning to be a navigator, a year flying piston provosts, and a year flying vampires. And at that stage, I suppose I'd got two, maybe 200 hours on my wings, and that's what I graduated with in December 1960. So the first time you went up in a jet, what was that like? Well, actually... I went up in a jet from school. I was given a special trip at uh, West Raynham when I was about 16, and I remember being very sick, but it didn't put me off. It put the pilot and the ground crew off, but it didn't put me off. So when you first went up in your first solo flight, how did you feel? Was it exciting? Well, 
yes, it was a milestone, and I was confident because I'd been well trained and they wouldn't have sent me if I wasn't up to it. And that was in a glider when I was, I suppose I must have been over 16, a schoolboy. Well, I got this flying scholarship and I went to Luton Airfield, which was before it even had a concrete runway, and I had 30 hours flying in a Tiger Moth with an instructor, and I, it was a one month, I did a, a month in school holiday uh, with a chap called Ted Sessions, who was a nice old boy instructor, and I did my 30 hours and passed my tests and got a private pilot's license. In this section, Nick talks about his time flying the English Electric Canberra with some stories to go with it. So when was your first time on a Canberra? Uh, I started training at the Operational Conversion Unit at Bassingbourne in 1961, January or February, for about a six-month course. At Bassingbourne there was quite a fleet of aircraft. There were the two-seater T-4s for pilot training, and then once the pilots were actually qualified and fit to go solo, then they went either to the bomber variants, if that's what they were going to do, and they had some photo reconnaissance cameras called PR3s, which were fairly old but perfectly safe and could give one the rudiments of learning to fly survey and aerial photography. And what was your role as a pilot with the camera? I was trained for photo reconnaissance, and that was the job that I did in Cyprus for nearly three years in flying a PR9, which is a high-performance variant of the camera. If you could just expand a bit on the PR9, what was it like to fly and what were those characteristics? Well, it was an extremely pleasant aircraft to fly, all Canberras are, but this was quite different from the original ones. It had fully powered controls, uh, no manual reversion, there was no manual backup, it had a bigger wing, it had bigger engines, it could go higher and it had a full fit of cameras for doing survey work or um, reconnaissance, depending on how the cameras were fitted and arranged in the aircraft. So what was the original role for the camera? The camera as an airframe was a light to medium bomber, and then variants came from that, the PR variants, and the PR9 as a more specific reconnaissance variant. And how many variants did you actually fly yourself? Two sorts of two-seater, and the the training one, and the PR3, 7 and 9. And out of the ones you flew, what was your favourite? Well, it would have to be the 9. It was a, a fine aircraft, lots of equipment that the other ones just didn't have. An autopilot, a sort of auto-approach arrangement. Um, and it was just very nice to fly. We did quite long trips in it, four and a half, five hours. The autopilot came in useful, which the poor bomber people didn't have. What kind of uh, camera did the PR9 have? It had a Swiss vertically mounted camera called a Wild, spelt W-I-L-D, and it has a fan, that is to say cameras that point slightly off the centre and further away to make complete coverage almost horizon to horizon when you're doing survey or reconnaissance work. Particularly, it's possible to fly along somebody's border and get pictures, scores of miles, into their country without going into it and violating their airspace. And that was quite a lot of what we were doing flying out of Bahrain 
on the first occasion when Kuwait was threatened by Iraq, which was in 1961 and most people have never heard of or forgotten about. That thing's been on the boil for quite a while. So tell us about your, your missions you did in Africa. Well, from Bahrain we had to go up once a day at staggered time so as not to be too predictable about an hour's transit up to the Kuwait border and fly along it with the border on our left looking in, not uh, with our eyes, we were too high but optically with the cameras and going home and basically the photographers, the photo interpreters looked at the pictures to see had they changed from day to day was there a runway being extended or new trucks arrived on airfields so it was more comparison uh, than a straight look at one day's photographs, they looked at a week's and compared them. And with planning for these missions, was it very detailed or was it on the spot, let's go? Oh no, it was uh, pretty much a, a standard sortie and different crews flew it and they knew where to go, when to turn, what to look at. There was no radar there, there was no risk of us being shot down, we hoped, but the Royal Navy had a destroyer up in Kuwait Bay and when we flew up they just gave us a test call on a radio frequency and if we didn't hear a test call or the radios had failed we heard nothing and we just went back home so it was fail safe. How long were you based over there? We did it as a one-month detachment from Cyprus two crews uh, then later on it actually became a detachment there were two aircraft of the squadron permanently based there, but the crews rotated. So how many crews would there be? We had eight aircraft and 11 or 12 crews. As I recall, might have only been 10. Were you always um, stuck with the same navigator? Yes, where possible. And what was the navigator's main job? Well, he had to get the aircraft to the right place at the right time, obviously. Um, and it was very difficult because some of the work we had to do, we did a complete survey of East Africa when it was still called Kenya, Tanganyika and Uganda and we had to fly 200 mile, 30 minute straight stretches in a straight line of photographs which had to overlap and then you had to turn around and come back up a parallel line and the photographs had to overlap left and right as well as fore and aft and it was jolly difficult to do in the middle of East Africa where a town doesn't come up every 50 miles. It was a big trick and in fact we sometimes missed it and the overlap didn't occur and then we had to go and fly another sortie just to patch the gaps. Um, East Africa was nice but the flying was a bit boring. How long was an average mission or sortie? Four hours, except going up to Kuwait and back was more like two but we could do four, and if there was no time constraint, we had to go surveying things. We flew for as long as we had fuel. But four, four hours plus some transit, maximum five. And there was no in-flight refueling capability on the camera, was No, there? never has been in any mark that I'm aware of. So what was the maximum uh, flight ceiling of the camera beyond? You could get it to about 60,000 feet, but it wasn't actually terribly manoeuvrable up there. And we didn't often go there because there was no reason to. We had the capability and we had the clothing, the flying equipment to go up there and be safe. But it was very rarely used. 
tell us a bit about the equipment you used to fly with? Yes, the we had to have what amounted to a pressure suit, but it wasn't like you see the men going to on the Saturn rocket. It was a three-part thing made up basically out of the anti-G trousers that fighter pilots wear, which could be inflated by air to pressurise our lower bodies. We wore a sleeved jerkin, which was also inflated by air and pressurised our chests, and we wore a special helmet, a tailor helmet, which was made to measure for each pilot, basically, and that kept your head safe. Was there any special requirements to be a Canberra PR9 pilot? Not as in terms of how you flew. It was more a question of your character traits. Where you did you want to be a rip the wings off thirty minute sorties hunter pilot, or were you a bit slower and steadier and could work with the navigator without frightening him? And did you ever want to be fly anything else? Well, you get three hour uh, three year tours. I'm never that keen on single seat. Perhaps I like the company of a navigator. And with, in the flights, in missions or sorties, did you communicate constantly or was it only when needed? Really, it was only when needed, unless we were in a long transit and really bored, in which case we might be discussing Arsenal against Manchester United while monitoring the instruments. When I finished in Cyprus, I was posted to the Central Flying School as a student so that I could become an instructor, and we all did basic flying, actually how to become an instructor on the Jet Provost, and the Air Force has a very good system. Basically, you sit in the aircraft, an instructor teaches you how to do something. Next time, you go up with another student and he teaches you how to do the same thing, and then you go up with another student and you teach him, and finally you go up with the original instructor and you do as what we call it a give-back. You teach him what he taught you two days ago, and you do that for up to 20 or 25 different lessons. Um, tried and tested, but pretty heavy on manpower and flying time. And how often did, uh, did you do it once a day? Twice Usually a twice, particularly in the summer. You lose flying time in the winter for the weather, so you have to make up for it when you've got sunlight. You're not even stuck with nine to five. It's more like eight to seven. In this part, Nick talks about flying the gnat and being an instructor at Valley. I learnt to fly it, which was challenging in some ways, and then I went to Valley as an instructor, Valley in Anglesey, and I did two years there as an instructor. Um, relatively advanced, the aircraft had the instrumentation or some of the instrumentation of a lightning in it, some of the instruments, the flying instruments. It was a complicated little aircraft, great fun to fly, fairly unforgiving, we had quite a lot of accidents, um, but I survived and so did most other people. And how manoeuvrable was a gnat compared to camera for instance? Well very because it was designed to be. Um, there was a single seat version of it called the Midge which was sold to Finland and India as a fighter. So why didn't the UK use it as a fighter? Well um, they were still getting by with lightnings and hunters 
and waiting for well in the end we got phantoms Valley was very busy. We had 60 aircraft, of which we got about 40 out on the line every morning. The unfortunate ground crew had to work 24-hour shifts in the hangar to get 60 aircraft out every morning, or try to, because they often finished up the day with 35 to 40 broken in some minor way. Uh, we had two squadrons of flying there, and mostly one squadron did the mornings, and the other squadron uh, did the afternoons. Uh, it was nearly a year before my wife found out that I didn't have to work all day and all the afternoon. I used to hang around on the squadron I didn't fly with, getting formation leads or air tests and things. And one year, I got just over 440 hours in 50-minute trips, which is actually, I wouldn't say it was hard work, it was fun, it kept me busy. What were the differences between the Jaguar and the Napa even? Well, the Jaguar was actually designed to be, or at one point considered, as being an RAF advanced trainer instead of the Hawk, and they realised it was very complicated in two engines, they didn't need that. Um, and the Jaguar was more modern than the Mat. Uh, again, some electronic aids, no radar, um, quite good long range, underpowered, uh, certainly in the initial build. In Oman, where I flew them, we actually had uprated engines and they jolly well needed to be because it was a lot hotter there. Uh, it wasn't very much fun to fly in hot weather. Needed a very long runway to get airborne with any load on it, bombs or rockets. And the aircraft you flew, which did you feel the power in the most? Oh, the Phantom. So that was probably the best experience you'd say with taking off? Well, I used to once or twice take, uh, I was asked to take people for trips, sometimes journalists or pilots of other types of aircraft, and you could get the thing going along at quite a good speed and then just pull the stick back and light the reeds and you could get to 10,000 feet to 30,000 feet. It felt like a minute, it might have been a little bit more, stand, seated on its tail. Passengers were well impressed. What was the first time you went supersonic? Actually, you could go supersonic in the net. In a fairly steep dive, merely to demonstrate the possibility of it happening to students it could never happen accidentally and was this abnormal practice for the RAF or was it for the pilots or the thrill oh no yeah, the, the NAT could go supersonic and we had to show them what it was like but it wasn't very natural it was done in about a 30 degree dive from 30,000 feet the Phantom would go supersonic in a slight climb Did you enjoy your service with the RAF? Yes, very much so. It was a good thing to have done. Uh, in fact, I told you I'd left uh, at 18-year point. Uh, I actually went back in after 17 years out doing other things. Uh, went back into the Air Force and got another job instructing on Bulldogs at a university air squadron. So all your family must be very proud of you as well. Yes, I think they think I'm a bit crazy, but then it's not just them. And finally, we get to hear more personal side of Nick. 
we've got a few personal questions. Do you have a favourite tickle? Well, I have three, really. I like a good Rioja, I like gin and tonic, and I like not dry cider. Do you have a favourite TV show? Well, right now, because I don't understand it, I really quite like Dynamo. Magician Impossible. How does that work, I have to ask. He's a lot cleverer than me. Do you have a favourite food? Uh, yes, I very much like nicely cooked calves, liver, and onions, and the trimmings. What do you like to do in your spare time? Well, when I can afford the petrol, I go out for a drive in my convertible car, if it's summer, and I keep in touch with my family and even my Canberra navigator, who is still alive. Um, I'm a social beast. Can you go to the toilet in a camera? Yes, would you like me to describe it basically? Of course. Okay, better not do number twos. Not easy, no toilet fitted. It is possible to get the necessary pipe work out of your flying suit and pee into a specially provided plastic bag which contains either a sponge or granules to absorb the noxious liquid and you fold it up and put it away and throw it in the dustbin when you land. Have you been to any air shows this year? Yes, I went to Sywell and I would be going to the open day at East Kirkby where they have the third Lancaster, the one that doesn't fly yet, but I'm doing something else on the one day of September that it's, it's there, but it's a very good display. I recommend it to anyone who is in Lincolnshire. What is your favourite aircraft of all time? Looks or to, fl to look at or to fly? Aesthetically. Probably the Constellation. That looks, that looks lovely. Thanks very much for watching. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you want to watch Nick or anyone else's interview, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash aircrewinterview. And don't forget to subscribe.